Thank you for listening to the Sermon on the Mount, God's Everyday Kingdom, a sermon series from Doxa Church. Join us each week as we explore God's vision for human flourishing in His kingdom. For more information, visit us Sunday mornings in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at doxa-church.com. Matthew 5, 1-7 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. You know, as often as we do that, we should all have it memorized by the time we're done, don't you think? Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for doing that and sharing God's word with us. My name's Jeff. If you haven't been with us before, uh, I want to welcome you. Glad to be with you. We are in what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. In the particular section, we're in is often called the Beatitudes. We're in verse 7 today. And last week, if you were with us, we walked through verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Another way to say that is flourishing are those who hunger for the world to be as God intends it to be, for they will be satisfied. If you're really, truly flourishing, if you're truly living the life that God intends for you to live, then you are hungry. You long for God to make things right. You, you want to be who you were meant to be in accordance with God's word. You want others to relate to one another uh, in the way that God intended us to relate to one another. And you want the world to be everything God has always intended it to be. And as you heard last week, if you hunger for that, you will be satisfied because God wants to satisfy you like a hungry person coming to a feast with the very righteousness of Jesus. He wants to meet your hunger with the provision of Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God, who can make you righteous, who can reconcile your relationships and who one day will make the world exactly what it's supposed to be. That's something we all hunger for. My son, Caleb, yesterday while we were doing, we did some Bible reading yesterday with he and Maggie and took some time to pray together afterwards and he asked me about uh, heaven and earth and he said, Dad, so, so when there's a new New heaven and a new earth, am I going to like, if I'm still alive when Jesus comes back and I get a new body and I end up on the new earth, am I going to miss out on heaven? Do I not get to go to heaven before I come to earth? I said, oh no, 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 heaven and earth will be together like at the garden and uh, it'll be what you've always wanted. And he goes, so do you think that they'll uh, have golf there or football? And I said, you'll have what you want. That's all I can tell you. And then he said, I hope Jesus comes quickly because I don't want to take my exam this week. I said, okay, that could happen. You should pray for his return quickly. It's interesting that the verse that we're, we're looking at today is aptly placed, as was last week's verse. Jesus, in his teaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, is building successively upon the previous statement. And uh, in particular, this statement fits so well after last week's hunger and thirsting for righteousness. I want you just to stop and think, how do you respond to your hunger? How do you 
respond to your hunger for you to be as you were meant to be, for your relationships to be as they ought to be, for the world to be as it ought to be? How do you respond when you look around in the world and you see unrighteousness everywhere? You see brokenness all over the place. You see your relationships not as they ought to be. When, when you look out there, when you watch your news feed, when you pay attention to Facebook posts, which I hate personally, to be honest, these days, when you watch CNN or Fox News, whichever side of the political aisle you happen to be on, because you know which one you listen to based upon which political stance you take, uh, how do you respond to what you see, read, or hear? When you look at your relationships with your coworkers and the things that don't quite go right at work as you hope they would. When you think about your friends and how they don't always follow through in the ways you had hoped. When you think about your family and the ways you would wish that they would act when your son continues to not lift the toilet seat over and over again, as happens in my household. How do you respond when you hunger and thirst for righteousness? When your dog poops all over the backyard and no one picks it up and you don't ever want to take him out and your wife doesn't like you because of that at that moment, how does she respond to you as a husband? Not like that ever happens, just a kind of a what if statement, of course. Uh, what if, what, how about when your kids are on their devices way too much and you keep telling them to not be on them and they disappoint you over and over and over again? And I could go on and on and on. What do you do when you hunger for the relationships and the people in your life to be as you wish they were? And then what happens when you look in yourself? When you look inside and you think about your thoughts, your motives, your behaviors, the words that sometimes come out of your mouth that you wish didn't come out or the tone in which they came out, how do you respond? When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness and you don't see it, how do you respond? When you long for the world to be the way you want it to be and it doesn't show up. Do you get angry? Now to be clear, anger in and of itself is not evil. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Anger in and of itself is not an evil thing. In fact, it's an appropriate thing to have a righteous anger, to say the world is not as it ought to be and that makes me angry. I wish it were not the case. I don't like the way I am. I wish I were different and that makes me angry. But here's the question. Where do you go with your anger? What do you do with your anger? In your anger, do you become bitter, resentful, in your anger, do you become judgmental and condemning? In your anger, do you become full of hate toward others or even yourself? Or are you merciful? As you hunger and thirst for righteousness, do you have mercy for the things that are not as they ought to be, the relationships that are not existing the way you hope they would be, for you not being all that you know you should be, are you merciful? Matthew 5, 7, again, I want to read it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To have or show mercy is to be full of compassion and willing to forgive. 
When we show mercy, we don't treat people in accordance with what they justly deserve. Some of you have heard mercy and grace explained this way. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, what you could not earn. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve, justly for your sin. So, are you merciful? When I watch the news or read most of Facebook, I see almost no mercy. I think Donald's question was a good question. What do you think the world says about this? Does the world want mercy or not? And the way I answered it is I think that most people want mercy for themselves but not for others. And as a result, they they stand in in constant judgment of others in a self-righteous stance or possibly they stand in judgment or condemnation on themselves. So are we merciful or are we judgmental? Are we full of forgiveness or full of condemnation? Are we full of love for others or full of hate? Now, Like I said, when I look at Facebook, it seems to me to be the antithesis of the kingdom of God these days. Some of you who love it, I'm sorry. It's sad. And what's sad for me is oftentimes the people who claim to know Jesus and love Jesus have the least mercy. That's a problem. When we of all people should be the most merciful and I have to, then I have to stop and say, okay, Jeff, watch yourself because you could also be just as merciless in judging the people on Facebook, right? And so then I have to back up and go, hold on, Jeff, before you stand in condemnation or self-righteousness, check yourself. Do you have mercy for those who don't or don't appear to? I think the reality is all of us need this message today. I know I do. So, How are you responding to your hunger for righteousness? Mercy or judgment? Forgiveness or condemnation? Love or hate? So Jeff, are you saying we're not supposed to judge? Well, yes and no. Jesus, toward the end of his sermon, the one that we're going through all year, appropriately says this, because the tendency will be, if we're not careful, to sit in judgment on everybody else once we've heard the message. He says, judge not, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, use it will be measured to you. In other words, he's saying, if you want to condemn people for their sin, be prepared to stand as one also condemned for yours. Another way to think about this is, if the worldview you want to live with is one of condemnation, one of accusation, one of judgment where you stand above people, just know that there's one who stands above you, God. And all of us will not measure up to his standard. And so God's saying, which way will you choose? The way of judgment and condemnation or the way of mercy and forgiveness? Which one do you need is another way of asking it. But are we supposed to just sit back and not call sin, sin, not call evil, evil? No, no, that's not what I'm saying fact, we need to agree with God. We are to state that something is unjust. We are supposed to call unrighteousness unrighteousness. We're supposed to say when something is wrong, it's really wrong, including when we do it, including about us, that we should say, 
I am unrighteous. I have fallen short. I am wrong. I'm willing to freely admit that I need mercy. See, if we're going to be full of mercy, we've got to realize we need it ourselves. So let me ask you again, how do you respond to your hunger for righteousness? Are you full of mercy or judgment? Now, to be clear, judgment can show up in a couple different ways. It can show up as the self-righteous judge. It can also show up as the self-condemning sinner. The self-righteous judge is angry and opposed to sinners, sees himself as above everybody else, better than others, is concerned more with being right than making things right, is unaware or often forgets their own spiritual poverty, believes they fundamentally have no need for mercy. Maybe you're not self-righteous, In your judging, maybe you're experiencing self-condemnation. The self-condemning sinner is angry at or hates themselves, emotionally or physically beats himself or herself up, regularly experiences self-hatred, self-loathing, or deep depression, believes there is no mercy available for them. The self-righteous says, I don't, self-righteous judge says, I don't need mercy. The self-condemning sinner says, I don't have mercy. There's no mercy for me. Which one do you tend to gravitate toward? Because I would bet everyone in the room gravitates toward one or the other or both at times. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying, go and show mercy to others so that you'll receive mercy. He's not saying, God's waiting to be merciful to you once you become merciful to others. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, blessed or flourishing are you if you are full of mercy. The word merciful means exactly that. Merciful means full of mercy. I know that might sound super simple, but we need to get that right. If you think when you read the word merciful, it's, man, I am like showing mercy to everybody. That's not first and foremost what it means. It means you have received mercy to the point at which you're full of it. That it's overflowing in your life. That you're a recipient of the mercy of God so that you can give the mercy away. You and I are merciful or mercy-filled to the degree to which we see our own need for mercy. So if you don't think you need mercy, you're not merciful. If you see that you do need it, and there's only one source of it, then you are merciful. In fact, these are, these are key characteristics of the merciful. If you are not self-righteous judge or self-condemning sinner, but a merciful person who's receiving mercy from God, then you are aware that the problem of unrighteousness is in you. That you are guilty. That when you look at the world and you look at your relationships, the first thing isn't everybody else is wrong, everybody else is broken. The first thing is, I need help. I'm broken. I'm not one standing in a place of righteousness as though I'm the only one who's done right in this world and everybody else is messed up. I start with me and like Paul, I can say, I'm the chief of sinners. I know myself better than I know anyone else. And I know what I'm like. And I know I need mercy. 
I also know that as a merciful person, I don't want to stand before God one day based upon my own righteousness. I know that I'll never stand in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, my only hope before God is not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And I know that God has been merciful to me in not counting my sins against me. And I believe James 2.13 that says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That I know that if I have to stand before the judge of the universe based upon my own merits, my only cry will be, Lord, have mercy on me. In fact, the most prayed prayer in the Bible is, Lord, have mercy on us. Because those who truly know God and God's righteous demands have no other hope but the mercy of God. No other hope. We will not stand on that day if we plan to stand on our own merits before a holy, just God. So as a result, we are eager to extend grace and mercy because we've received it first from God. Peter Kreef states in Backed to Virtue, he says this, there are no good people. And the best of us say so the most clearly. Saints agree they are sinners. Only sinners think they are saints. Only fools demand justice. For where would we be if we got it? No, mercy is our only hope from God and our neighbor's only hope from us as well. Such a good word that we need to all hear. See, we need to be like the people who get up in the morning and say, but for God's grace, I would not be alive. But for his mercy, I would not be sustained. If I did not have mercy, I would not be alive today. That God in his grace has been merciful to us, not treating us in accordance with our sin, but treating us in accordance with his son and his righteousness and what Jesus has done for us. Peter, at one point in Matthew 18, as it's recorded in verse 21, comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, which that was a lot for him. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is another way of saying, never stop forgiving. Infinitely. Don't give up on forgiveness. Continue to extend mercy. Then Jesus proceeds to tell the story of the unforgiving servant. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owned him, owed him 10,000 talents, which that's just an unpayable amount, just to be clear, for that, that man. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and then payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned, owed him a hundred denarii, very little amount, and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I want to be really clear here. What's going on is the unmerciful or unforgiving servant here was given mercy, but he did not receive it. He just lived with the benefits of it. That's important to understand here. He got to experience the benefits of mercy without acknowledging his deep need for it and receiving it fully. The reason why we know is because if he had received it fully, he would have had mercy to give away. But he had no mercy to give because he never fully received mercy. He just lived with the benefits of mercy, which is what every human on the earth is living with right now. God has been patient with us. He's very clear. He's wanting none to perish, but he's been slow in his kindness, keeping his wrath held back so that all might come and hear the good news that Jesus came and lived a life they couldn't live, died a death that they should have died, so that all might come to repentance. God's desire is that you would hear the word of the gospel and say, I need mercy, and only Jesus is the means by which I can receive the mercy of God. And then every day I wake up, he is being patient with me. He is long-suffering with me. He is being kind to me. And some of you are, are walking every day not even aware that every morning you get up is an act of God's mercy for you. That he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve, but he's holding back his wrath, wanting you to come to Jesus Christ. That is his grace to you. That is his mercy to you. Just like this servant received the benefits of mercy but never received it. Some of you are in the room receiving the benefits of God's mercy but you've never received it personally. You're living as though you're not even aware of his mercy. And he's saying, come and receive it. Don't just be a beneficiary of it. Be a recipient of it. Be one who not only receives mercy but because you've received it, becomes merciful so that you can bring mercy to a world desperately in need of God's kindness in Christ. In fact, I would say, your mercy to others is a sign that you get what I just said. And in as much as you withhold mercy, in as much as you struggle to give mercy, that's the, the area or degree to which you have failed to understand That every moment of every day for you is the mercy of God sustaining your life. There may be some of you today who have never responded to God's mercy that God has poured out in his son for you. And I, I plead to you, don't miss out on the mercy of God anymore. There's others of you who said, I've seen my need for mercy. Jeff, I've received it. I I believe Jesus lived righteous life for me, that he died to atone for my sin, to pay in full what I deserve, that he rose again to vindicate that he is the righteous one, that he is the victorious one, that only in Jesus is there forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God made available. I believe that, but here is what I want to say to you. Pay attention to where you don't or have yet to see your deep need for mercy. I'm sure there are areas of your life where you stand in self-righteous judgment on other people or in self-condemning hateful thoughts on yourself. Here's what I've seen. We tend to extend mercy where we've already experienced it. 
And we tend to withhold mercy where we haven't yet experienced our need for it. Think about the people you most easily write off. The ones that you, you, you tend to go like, how in the world could anybody be so dumb? Right? How in the world could somebody do that? How could anybody not see that that's wrong? How could people continue doing those things? Let me just encourage you. Those are probably the areas of your life where you haven't yet struggled. As a, as a leader in the church, I've watched several of my brothers fall. Other pastors, other leaders in the church. And I have to regularly watch myself and say, Jeff, apart from the grace of God and the mercy of him, I could go the same direction. God, be merciful on me. Help me. Don't let me be blind to my need for your mercy. And maybe that's what you need to do too. Maybe, maybe you need to say, God, open up my eyes. Where have I been judgmental or condemning, self-righteous or full of bitterness and resentment for others who struggle? Maybe you have never struggled like they do. Maybe you just can't get it. I know it's hard to understand sometimes why people struggle with certain kinds of sin when you don't, and yet you struggle with other kinds of sin that maybe they don't. May God give us mercy. See, the religious leaders didn't get it. They were around Jesus, and they're like, why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Why do you eat with these kinds of people? These are people that we should stay away from. And Jesus says to them, as they're critiquing who he hangs out with, who he loves, who he shows mercy to, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments on this in The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, the merciful will be found consorting with publicans and sinners. That's tax collectors and sinners. People who are the riffraff, people who religious people often give themselves permission to not relate to. And he says, careless of the shame they incur thereby. In order that they may be merciful, they cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honor. For the only honor and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy to which alone they owe their very lives. And if you really understand that the only hope we have is the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, then you find yourself in company with the people that Jesus would be with because he chose to be in company with you. He cho- chooses to represent you before God the Father, not in accordance with what you've done, but in accordance with what he's done for you. So are you aware of your personal need for God's mercy? And in in as much as you are aware of it, and as much as you have received it, you will then give it to others. But if you think you're righteous and you don't need it, you'll show up to a church gathering and go, I'm showing up with my sacrifice. You'll show up to a missional community and go, look at what I have to bring. Look at what I can do. And you'll be like the religious leaders going, hey, pay attention to our good works, Jesus. And Jesus going, you don't even need me. And what does he say to them? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't expect you to show up and pay for your sins. I expect you to show up and say, I need someone to pay. I need someone else to do what I can't do. And that is Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is full payment, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is really good news. Jesus saying, I get you. I understand you. I was faithful when you're not. I'm merciful because you need it. Hebrews 4 goes on in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus experiences everything you and I have ever experienced. He's been tempted in every way, just like you and I are. And yet he never sinned. And he's able to say to you, I get it. I feel what you feel. I know what you're going through. I want to meet you in it. I want to give you what you need. And he he didn't just die for our sins to forgive us, but he rose again to go be before God the Father on our behalf, making advocacy for us on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, so you can at any moment Come to God and know that God is not against you but for you in Christ and that you're not going to fear condemnation but you're going to hear the Father's love poured out in your heart through the Spirit so you can say, God, I need help. I'm a mess. I'm hungry. I'm hungry for me to be righteous. I'm hungry for us to be righteous. I'm hungry for the world to be righteous. And if I'm not careful, I'll just get angry and mad at myself or them. But I want mercy. Give me mercy. I need it. And at the cross, justice and mercy embraced and kissed. Because when we look at the cross, we see what God thinks of sin. He hates it. He wants to eradicate it from the the entire world. If you're ever wondering, what does God think of sin? Look at what the cross tells you about it. It Tells you it is utterly sinful. Justice. God is the one who is just and the one who justifies because not only justice that we see at the cross, it's also the mercy of God. At the cross, we see what God thinks of sin, but at the cross, we also see what God thinks of sinners. He loves us. He is for us. He extends mercy to us through Jesus. And the truth is, every single one of you inherently wants atonement. The word atonement means full payment that is commensurate to the reality of the sin committed. Every one of us wants it. I mean, intuitively, you know it's required. When you sin, you realize you feel the shame, you feel the guilt, you feel, sometimes feel the fear, knowing you're going to stand before a holy God and you can live with that and say, I need an atoning sacrifice. And if you don't find one, you'll find yourself to be it for you. And therefore you'll live with self-hatred and loathing most of your life. Or you'll do what Adam and Eve did. You'll just blame somebody else and you'll begin to self, you'll begin to hate, hate and loathe others. But you need an atonement. You need someone to pay. You need justice to be met. You need mercy to be extended. I was on a flight to Denver a few years ago and sat next to a woman of whom I asked, are you going home or leaving home? And she said, both. And I said, what, 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 what do you mean? She said, well, my husband and my sons are in Denver waiting for me. They went ahead and they've been preparing the house and I had to stay back for a few months and finish my job here in Seattle. 
I said, well, why do you say you're leaving and you're going? And she said, well, because I'm going to sign uh, divorce papers. While I stayed here in Seattle, I had an affair. And so I'll be living in Seattle again and leaving my husband and my boys there. She said, my husband went on Facebook and did everything he could to ruin my name publicly. And my sons hate me. And as she continued to share her story, you could just feel the shame that she was living with and the the self-hatred she had for her own sin. And at one point, I, I, I just asked her, what are you doing with all that? How are, you, how are you handling all that? At one point she stopped. She said, are you like a counselor or something? I said, but I, no, but I know one. That's insider joke. Jesus called the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the counselor. And by the way, I want to encourage you, you all have the counselor if you know Jesus. You have the ability to listen well and to be a means by which God can extend hope and mercy and grace to people. And she said, why are you listening like this? Well, I don't get it. And I share with her a little bit about who I am and who I know and told her about Jesus. And I said, you know, God has made every human on the earth to want atonement. He's made every one of us to want to have payment for sin. Most often we want payment because someone sinned against us. But the reality is, if we're honest, we know we've sinned against God. And we live with that reality on a daily basis. And some of us work tirelessly to try and measure up to what's around us in society as though we might pay through our hard work. Others of us think if we do enough good unto others, that will atone for our sin. And some others say if we could just be a part of a church or give our money or be involved in a missional community or whatever it is, good Christian work, we think that that somehow will do it, but none of that atones for sin. There's only one atonement for sin. And I told her, I said, that the thing that your husband is feeling right now is anger against you because he wants someone to pay. And he's gonna try and make you pay the rest of your life, but it'll never satisfy him. And your sons are gonna be wrestling with who should pay. And I would bet you're feeling that right now. I bet you feel like you should pay. And I said to her, if you spend your life trying to pay back, you'll still spend your life with the burden and weight of the guilt of your sin and it'll never go away. There's only one who can pay, I told her. And that one had to be righteous. That one had to be always faithful. That one had to be completely pure. That one had to obey God in absolutely every way that we don't. And Jesus came to be the obedience to God for you in the ways you haven't. And then he died on the cross to fully pay for your sin, to atone for it. And we know that he paid in full because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day to show that he had paid in full and that God the Father accepted his payment for you. I said, you can either receive that and spend the rest of your life free of shame, knowing guilt has been atoned for and that you don't ever have to be afraid to face God one day, or you can spend your whole life trying to pay on your own and you'll deal with your husband's hatred and your son's rejection and your own self-loathing and that's where you'll live. I said, the beauty is if you receive the grace of God, the mercy of God, the atonement of God through Jesus Christ, then every time your husband is angry at you and wants to blame you, you can just point the finger in your heart to Jesus Christ who took the blame for you. And you can know that though he may want you to pay, you don't have to anymore because Jesus paid in full for your sin. I would bet right now 
Some of you in this room have never, ever experienced what I just said. That Jesus will remove your shame. He atoned for your guilt. And he makes it so you'll never have to be afraid to face God ever again because of what he's done for you. You need God's mercy. Receive it. And I said that to her and she didn't respond. She, she said, that sounds too good to be true. I said, it is true. She may have responded by now. Who knows, maybe she's in the room. Maybe God has opened her eyes to see the great mercy and grace he's given her in Christ. But you know what? You might be the person today. Respond. Receive. Don't just live with the benefits of mercy. Be a recipient of mercy. And maybe you're saying, it's not what, other, it's not what I've done, it's what others have done to me, Jeff. You don't understand, I've been sinned against. I've been hurt deeply. I've got the wounds to show it. I was counseling someone a while back who has been deeply wounded by sin. And I said to her, if you continue to carry the weight of sin yourself, then you'll be the one who feels like you have to atone for somebody else's sin against you. But Isaiah says it's by his wounds that we're healed. That when we look to the cross, we say, God sees and he knows and he says that is how bad sin really is. Don't diminish it, don't make it less. See, forgiveness is not just going, oh, no big deal. No, forgiveness is saying, it's so big of a deal, there's only one who can handle it. And that's Jesus Christ. And there's some of you in the room who are going, I haven't yet been able to forgive those who've sinned against me. And when I spoke to this woman, I said, have you forgiven those people? And she said, no, not yet. And I said, I want to encourage you. Forgiveness is not you belittling it or denying it or pushing away. It's you fully embracing how bad it really is that it required Jesus to die. And as you say, that's how bad it really is. Will you just embrace the cross and say, only you can handle the weight of sin, Jesus. I can't. I can't carry it any longer. I put it on you. You are the one who is just and you are the one who is the justifier. You have to handle it for me. And there may be some of you in the room who need to look away from the one who sinned against you and look to the one who died for that sin so that you can be set free from it being a continual burden that's destroying your life. Look to the cross. Look to the cross where you see what God thinks of sin. Look to the cross where you see how much you and I have all fallen short in our need of mercy. Look to the cross where you see God's justice fully satisfied and his mercy fully poured out so that you and I might receive mercy and in turn we might be able to give mercy. And know that Jesus didn't just die to pay for sin. He rose again victoriously over it so you and I could be set free from its power to live a new life. Let me ask, where do you struggle today? to receive mercy in your own life? Where are you struggling where you need mercy from God? What I'd like you to do in light of the prayer we prayed earlier, I just want you to just come before God with whatever that is, whatever that sin is, whatever that struggle is, and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Just go ahead and do that. Close your eyes. See that struggle, that sin, whatever it may be. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. And now I want you to think of a person or persons where you're saying, I'm having such a hard time extending mercy. 
And what I want you to say, if you can, is you have those people's faces or names in your mind, just say, Lord, extend mercy through me. Two, say their name. Lord, extend mercy through me. Two. You are the God of all mercy and comfort. We will never be merciful until we receive full mercy from you. So pour out your mercy into our lives. First of all, for us, as we need it desperately. And then through us, because the people in our lives need it as well. We thank you, Jesus, that you not only rose from the dead, but you promised to come back. And that all whose faith is in you and what you've done for them will be able to stand on that day before you without fear, knowing that we are made right not because of our, because of our own account and merit, but because of yours. And we will receive mercy as fully as we could ever imagine it. And in that day, we won't just stand before you, but we will fall on our faces because you alone are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor for you alone are merciful. And so we receive again our need met in you for mercy today. In Jesus' name, amen.